hope. And uh, this morning, through God's word, I'm going to introduce you to the very beginning of hope and the very beginning of God's word. So such an appropriate word and uh, an appropriate song to sing. And speaking of hope, you know, we are the people of hope as believers, are we not? And this world is in desperate need of hope. I think we can all agree on that. And the only true hope for this world is the one we were just singing about, Jesus Christ. And uh, I wanted to let you know that next week and next Sunday after church, there is an opportunity for you to, uh, to come with our mission team to go bring some hope to uh, people that are, are homeless, people that are struggling and that, um, that need hope. They need all kinds of hope, but they need the true hope that only Jesus can bring. And so this week, uh, please be looking uh, for the email with details. It'll be on our website as well about how to sign up for that. But there's room for 10 people to go with us. It'll be about a two-hour commitment on Sunday after church next week. But we'll be going up to Neptune and visiting some friends that are struggling and, uh, and that really could use a message of hope, to, to use uh, maybe just a smiling face, even if it's behind the mask, uh, an encouraging word, uh, a, a gift uh, of some, some necessary things to help them get by just another day, but most importantly, we'll be bringing them the hope of Jesus in the gospel. And so if you're interested in doing something like that, we're going to, uh, the mission team has decided that we want to uh, have something at least once a month, an opportunity for our church to go outside these four walls and to let other people know about Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what our mission team does, and they are committed to that, to keeping missions, bringing the gospel, the mission that we are all on together front and center in this church. And so uh, we have this opportunity next week, so please be looking for the information. If you have any questions, you can email me or call me as well, uh, but we will send out the details for that. Um, but we're going to get right into God's Word, and we are going through a series in Genesis. And uh, it's going to take us a little while, uh, but um, we're going to look at Genesis because it is the foundation for all of life. Everything that we experience in life has its beginning, its origin, its foundation in the book of Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible, and it sets the beginning of the story, right? It's like you're watching a, a great epic movie or, or reading an, uh, you know, a classic novel, and it's the first few pages, it's the beginning of the story. It sets, it brings all the main characters, uh, you know, into focus, and you start to learn about them, and and it sets the foundation for everything that comes after. And so, whether we talk about marriage, or we talk about the sanctity of life, or we talk about government, or we talk about politics, or we talk about uh, death, and we talk about um, nations, whatever it may be. It has its beginnings. And uh, today, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, it'll be no different. In fact, Genesis chapter 3, we'll look at the whole chapter today, is unique in that the whole story of Scripture, church, the whole narrative of the Bible really 
takes its turn here in Genesis 3. Like any great epic story, everything starts out great, but then something happens to mar the picture, to ruin what was perfect, and the rest of the story is about trying to get back to that state of perfection, get back to how it was supposed to be. And this story is the one that sets all of the great stories throughout history into motion. And today, chapter three, we're going to see is the pivotal chapter in all of Genesis and perhaps in all of the Bible. Because in many ways, chapter three of Genesis gives us the gospel message. It's the first presentation of the good news. We were just singing about hope, and today we will be introduced to hope. And so I just want to remind you where we are in Genesis. And so we have our series called Foundations. It's the future begins here because we want to know how the story ends. We need to see how it begins. But Genesis, the whole book, can really be broken down a couple of ways. We'll try to keep it simple, right? It it helps us as we go through it. And so in one way, uh, Genesis can be broken into two parts. The first part is the foundations of the human race. That's chapters 1 to 11. And then the rest, or the other part, the second part, is the foundations of the Hebrew race. And that's the rest. That's uh, chapters 12 to 50. See, so it's an easy way to help remember. we got two parts of Genesis. The the, the beginning of the foundations of the human race and the beginning of the foundations of the Hebrew race. But then we break those two down a little bit further. Again, keeping it simple, that part one, the foundation of the human race, is really marked by four main events. So we have creation that we've been talking about, and then we have the fall, which is today's topic, Genesis 3, and then, of course, the flood, and then dispersion, which is the Tower of Babel. So the first part is four main events. The second part, the foundation of the Hebrew race, is not really four main events, it's four main people. So it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, there's a lot of other people and a lot of other characters that we're going to look at and talk about that are, who are highly significant. But just to kind of keep the flow going and to kind of give us some context, that's how we're going to break down Genesis throughout our sermon series. The foundation of the human race is four events, and then the foundation of the Hebrew race, four main people. Okay, so where we are today, we are still in creation. We are still in um, the first part and then we are in the, um, the, the very first main event, which is creation, all right? And so that's where we are today. Um, you know, he, I wanted to, to mention this um, this morning in that, you know, we all get excited when the seasons change. And, um, you know, the beginning, the, the, the official beginning of fall was about a month ago, September 22nd. But I feel like just now it's starting to feel like that. You get that sense? And especially this weekend. And, you know, so I was kind of reflecting back on the summer, and I think we all have fond memories of summers. This summer was a little different, though, wasn't it? It's a little different. But I think we can still look back, and we maybe it's around this time we, yeah, you know, we look back on summer. We're kind of glad fall is here. But, of course, when the dark days of January come, we're longing for those days of the summer, right? So we all have fond uh, summer memories, but 
You know, there's one memory of a summer from when I was a child that I would soon forget. And it's, um, it starts with me um, being um, a, a troublemaker. And I know you look at me and you know me like, that's impossible, Pastor Keith. There's no way that you are a troublemaker, right? Um, but yes, yes, in my youth. And um, I think we can all attest to that if you're honest, right? That we all have those things that we're, you know, we regret doing. But there was one summer day, I was with my friend Joey, and, and uh, he had a pool. We were hanging out at his pool down the block. And, and then we were just outside. I would say we were maybe 11 or 12. And, and we're outside hanging out in his front lawn. And we looked up on this tree across the street, and there was a huge hornet's nest about this big. And there were some hornets that just kind of hanging out, doing their thing, right? What God designed them to do, minding their own business. And so, of course, Joey and I decided we weren't going to mind our own business. And so we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we picked up some rocks and tried to knock down that hornet's nest? Wouldn't that be fun, right? And so it's exactly what we proceeded to do. We started throwing rocks, but of course, instead of knocking down the hornet's nest, we just kind of made him a little angry, see? And, you know, you never think that this would actually happen to you, but I remember vividly throwing the rocks, and we couldn't knock it down, but all of a sudden there was a little bit more activity around that hornet's nest, and I saw them making a quote-unquote beeline for me, and they were angry as angry as a hornet, right? And so they started running, they started flying towards me and my friend, my friend Joey, we were right outside his house. So the great friend he is, he ran back into his house and left me out there by myself. And so I lived four doors down. So I started running as fast as I could, remember it like it was yesterday, up the sidewalk. And of course we had just been swimming. So I'm in my bathing suit and you know, there's no shirt and, and uh, no shoes on and I'm running as fast as I could. And who do you think is faster? Of course, the hornets. And so as I'm running to my house, only four doors down, I got stung on my back, lucky number 13 times. And so, praise God, I wasn't allergic. I ran into the house screaming for my mom, and she came and saw what would happen. She cleared off the kitchen table, and before I knew it, I was laying on the kitchen table and my mom had this old, this, uh, what do you call it, mercurochrome or something like that, right? I forget what that is. It was like a, a pink or like orange type of thing. I guess it gets like an antiseptic, right? And she is then picking out one by one all of the stingers. And I am in agony. And then she's trying to soothe it. And I'd like to say I learned my lesson. Now, I never threw rocks again at a hornet's nest. But... What an experience, you know, I describe it in detail because we all have those experiences, right, where we can remember it like it was yesterday, and I remember that like it was yesterday. But as we go through Genesis chapter 3, uh, as I was studying it, I was kind of using that experience as sort, of, um, as sort of an outline for how that, those like maybe three or four minutes progressed in my life. Because you can see every step of the way from us picking up the rocks and provoking those hornets to then creating that problem where we were in a great predicament. There was punishment for me being stung, but then there was laying on the table a provision for me to be soothed, to be rescued from my predicament. 
But see, that's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Perhaps you have an experience from your own life that maybe you can picture or recollect that as we go through Genesis 3, let it be a context for you. Because that's exactly what happens, and we'll, we'll sort of let those five things be our guide this morning. Because God, in his infinite wisdom, lays out for us the gospel story. He gives us the gospel truth and really lays out uh, the outline for the whole rest of God's story all the way to Revelation. And so first it starts with a provocation, that there is a provoking of somebody to do something wrong, to be disobedient. And then, of course, there is a giving into that, which creates a problem. So there's a provocation or provoking. Then there's a problem that's created by giving into that. And then, of course, once there's a problem, you find yourself in a predicament, which means there's all kinds of consequences and things that are going to go wrong. But then from that predicament, there are consequences which we call judgment or punishment in the Scriptures. But then, see, God in his mercy doesn't leave it at the punishment. He gives us one more letter P, and that would be provision, a promise for a plan for providing, for, for um for redemption, okay, from rescue from our predicaments. Does that make sense? So that's going to be how we're going to flow through Genesis 3. So we keep that in mind. And, and every step along the way, I was thinking about those three or four minutes, uh, you know, when I made a bad decision and I paid for it, right? And um, did you ever, like, feel something physically and then years later you reminded of it and you could kind of feel the pain or think that? You know, and it's kind of just weird. It's just kind of like a little weird feeling like, yeah, I kind of can almost feel those stingers in my back, you know. But um, uh, I want to read for you now Genesis chapter 3. It, it, it's the whole chapter, uh, but remember how it is that we're going to just briefly break it down today. And then, of course, after we look at the individual parts and, and how we move from provocation to provision, then, of course, we end, as always, with so what? So what does this mean to us? What, what are we to learn and, and to glean from Genesis chapter 3? How is it going to help us to be more like Jesus and, and a better disciple of his? And so here is Genesis chapter 3. I, I, I assume that, that all of you here have read some or part of it or have heard of it uh, at the very least. So it will be familiar to you. Uh, but maybe even if you, if you like to write in your Bibles or you take notes, write down some words or phrases that maybe you never focused on before. Um, and, uh, and we'll see if, if it's something that perhaps the Lord will bring to light this morning. So, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to to be with me, she she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And so the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. On the surface... Doesn't it sound like such a sensational story? But yet we believe here that this is all true and all really happened. And why is it significant? Well, we'll get to that. But first, as we go through these five different phases of this story, let's just pull out a few highlights, some things that that we want to make sure we don't miss that are important to understanding exactly what's happening here. See, first, in verses 1 to 5, we have what I'm calling the provocation. It's like when my friend Joey and I threw the rocks at the hornet's nest, 
we were provoking them to do something, weren't we? We were teasing them. We were tempting them. We were provoking them into doing something to take some kind of action, either ignoring us or responding to us. And so verses 1 to 5 of Genesis 3 is that provocation. So first I want to mention this, you know, this came up in a conversation I had this week. How do we know that the serpent was Satan? And if you read it, actually, Genesis 3 doesn't tell us that. We all kind of assume that. But Genesis 3 doesn't say specifically and directly that the serpent was Satan. But see, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that Scripture completes itself. And you understand Scripture by comparing it against other Scripture. It's like taking something out of context and saying, well, this doesn't make sense without reading the rest of the story. And so we won't turn to it, but if you want to write it down, if you go all the way to the end of the story in Revelation, where Satan comes back big again in the story, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, both call Satan that serpent of old, that great serpent, that great dragon. And so very clearly, the serpent who shows up on the scene here to tempt Adam and Eve is Satan himself, embodied in the snake. Not every snake is evil, but we'll see as God pronounces judgment why when we look at a snake, we can be reminded of the fact that we have an enemy in God's judgment on sin. So here is the serpent. It is Satan himself, God's enemy. And it says he is more crafty. See, that's a good word. See, Satan is hardly ever very overt in the way that he deceives people. I mean, that's just the nature of deception, right? You don't just walk up to somebody and say, I'm going to deceive you right now, so be ready. I mean, deceitful simply means that it's happening without you knowing it. That's the idea. That's the plan. And so it says Satan was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Why a serpent? Significant. See, Adam and Eve were given, if you remember from the last two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve were given dominion over the earth, right? And a part of that is the animal kingdom. So the way God set up his hierarchy, God would rule over Adam and Eve. They would rule over his creation, including the animals. So what Satan does from the very beginning, and he still does it today, is he distorts God's word. And listen, he distorts God's design. That's really important. He's still doing that today. Whether it's for humanity and whether it's for God's design for marriage, whatever it may be, Satan will, say, will take that and distort it. Why? This is important. Satan cannot create. God is the creator. Satan cannot create. Satan can distort. And that's what he does. He'll take a beautiful creation of God and try to distort it to use for his own purposes. And so he inhabits in a way, takes the form of a serpent, because Adam and Eve should have been ruling over him, but because he provokes them, he is pervert, trying to pervert what God had created, and he turns God's plan around so that now Adam and Eve, who are they obeying? Not God, they are obeying the creation. See that? They're supposed to rule over the snake. The snake then rules over them. It's a question of authority. More on that later. So Satan already from the beginning perverts what God 
creates because he cannot create on his own. And Satan does the same thing today. Why? I mean, we hear it all the time. There is no absolute truth. Or the question that Pilate asked, people still ask today, what is truth? Well, the prevailing philosophy of the day is that you can define your own truth. Whatever you believe to be true and good, then that's good and true for you. See, what that, if that's the case, that means there's no absolute truth. Remember, church, we are building foundations here in Genesis. We're building the foundation for the rest of the, the Bible. And so the first foundation is being laid in the beginning, God, and God creates, and then God speaks. Remember, and he said, let there be light, and that was the first thing that he said. God speaks. And so right away we see a significant importance placed on the word of God. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, please remember this. The word of God is our absolute truth. It's, it's number one in our statement of faith as a church, built right into our constitution, the foundation of our church, see? It is the word of God, and that is our absolute truth, because if it's not, then our foundation is always shaking and moving and unstable. And then how are we going to move forward or even have a vision of hope for the future if we don't have a solid foundation? So God's word is absolute. And so right away, what does Satan do? He tries to distort that truth so that people, the very first people, begin to doubt that God's word is absolutely true. So Satan adds to the word of God. What does he say? He says, did God say? Do you see right there? That's provoking. That's like throwing the rocks at the hornet's nest. He is provoking them. Did God really say that? Picture Adam and Eve. Hmm, did he really say that? Questioning the word of God. Isn't it wonderful that we have the word of God for us, that we can turn to it and people question it. We can say, here it is right here. It's in black and white, see. That God says it. It is his absolute truth, his word to us. And so Satan tries to add to God's word. Did he say? He even changes what God really said. We talk about fake news today, right? And there it is, the very first fake news. Satan challenges God's goodness. He wants Eve to question it. Wait, it, is God really good to me? I mean, would God keep me from eating everything, all the beautiful fruit? I mean, why would God plant this beautiful tree and this fruit and tell me not to eat it? Do you see what Satan's doing, church? Are you with me? Do you see what he's doing? He's provoking them. He's deceiving them. It still happens today. So many people that have yet to receive Jesus as Savior, their reasoning is, how could a good God let the world be like this? It's questioning God's goodness, and Satan started that process way back in Genesis 3. Satan also not only adds to God's word and challenges his goodness, he subtracts from God's word. He did not say that you will surely die. He is attacking the word of God. He's attacking the truth. Listen, from day one, there has always been an attack on the truth. Now, we as people of truth, we know about that. We understand that. But see, we represent the truth of God in Christ, don't we? And we have the word of God, and we're called to go proclaim it. But the world, see, is going to be anti-truth because there has always been that in eighth century, in, in sinful, uh, the sinful nature of humans, this idea of rebelling against authority, rebelling against somebody else's truth, see? 
It all started here. And the final thing about this is that Satan offers wisdom apart from God. You know, in the Tuesday morning men's Bible study, we're studying Proverbs. And so often Proverbs, if you've read any of it, it talks about the wise man and the foolish man, right? It talks about how to be wise and what it looks like to be foolish. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that throughout the Scripture. So what Satan tries to do is, listen, offer up his own brand of wisdom apart from God. But there is no true wisdom apart from God because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, meaning respect and revering God. People can be very smart. People can be highly intellectual. People can be extremely expertly knowledgeable at something. But it doesn't make them wise. Can we say amen to that? There is no true wisdom apart from God. And Satan right there, as he is trying to twist and thwart God's original design for his creation and for man and woman, right there is offering his own brand of wisdom. And then in verses 2 and 3, Adam and Eve make the same mistake. They subtract from God's word and they start to question. And herein begins the problem. Verse 6. Verse 6 is the problem. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree had been desired to make one wise, see there it is, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate as well. So we have the provocation but then there is the problem. Disrupting the intended design. All was right with the world. The, The hornets were just doing their thing. And we had to provoke him. It created the problem. You know, in 1 John 2.16, just want to read it to you. Listen. 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. All of our temptations fall into one of those things. The lust of the flesh, it's physical. The lust of the eyes, it's what we think, what we allow into our mind. The pride of life, it's the heart. It's body, mind, and heart. We can be tempted in all three ways. Jesus was tempted in all three ways in the desert, right? And, and so we see Hebrews 4 says that Christ was tempted in, in all ways as we were, meaning all three of those ways, the flesh, the eyes, pride of life, the body, the mind, and the heart. Adam and Eve failed, but Jesus succeeds. That's why Hebrews goes on to say that we have a great high priest. We can trust him. We can confide in him because where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. So when we are tempted, we can go to Jesus because he knows what it's like. Praise God for that. So that's the problem, verse 6. So we have the provocation, we have the problem, but then there's the predicament. These are the consequences of the provocation and the consequences of, of giving into that temptation, which creates the problem. All kinds of consequences. When I threw the rock and created that problem, I needed to run. I was afraid. I was blaming my friend for leaving me. See, that's the things you start to do, the consequences of sin, Fear, blame, running away. Verse 7, they tried to solve their own problems. See, they saw they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Church, that was the beginning of human beings. This is so important. 
the very beginning of human beings trying to rectify their problem, trying to solve their own situation, trying to redeem themselves back to God on their own. That's one of the consequences of sin. We try to solve our own problems. It was man-made coverings. They attempted to fix the problem themselves, and ever since, we have been doing the same thing. Verses 8 to 10, right, we see God coming to them and saying, hey, where are you? God knew where they were, but you know what it signifies? Listen, it signifies a broken relationship. So not only are we trying to solve our own problems, there was a broken fellowship with God. When he says, where are you? It's, it's him saying, uh, something has changed with our relationship. Where are you? Once they walked with God in the cool of the day, and now they're running and hiding behind the bushes. People don't like God. People try to run from God. We used to walk with God, now we run away from him. Verses 11 to 13, he says, what did you do? Who told you you were naked? The woman. I was wondering if I get any chuckles from that. That's what he says, right? It's so funny. It's like you laugh when you read it. He's like, who told you that you were naked? The man said, the woman who you gave to me. He turns to the woman. What have you done? The woman says, the serpent. So another consequence, another part of the predicament. We try to solve our own problems. There's broken fellowship with God and others, and we blame others. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. We don't take responsibility for our own actions. That is part of the predicament, one of the consequences of sin. And then finally, the loss of dominion. There is this battle for authority. God had given, listen, God had given authority to Adam and Eve, and Satan comes along and provokes them. They give in to the, the provocation, the temptation. There is then the problem... Then they find themselves in this predicament. They try to blame each other except taking responsibility. And what happens in the process, Satan, God's enemy, has usurped authority and dominion over the earth from them. God had given the earth to Adam and Eve and said, have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, take care of my creation. You get to tell the animals what to do, not the snake telling you what to do. But see, in the process, Satan took over. So from that day, Satan has dominion over this world. Remember, God is always sovereign, no matter what. But Satan has dominion as God allows him because of that. But that's why then we're going to see at the end of our time together in just a few minutes that God gives a provision, a way out of that. So we have this predicament Solving our own problems, broken fellowship, we blame others, we don't take responsibility for our actions, we have lost that authority, and so you know what? From that day on, we fight against authority. I fought the law, and the law won. Remember that song? (laughs) But see, that's the idea. Because that's part of our sinful nature. We don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. We didn't like it when our friends told us what to do. We didn't like it when our parents told us what to do. We couldn't wait to be adults so we could do our own thing. Then we go to work. Then we have a boss that tells us what to do. And then you get married. No, that's that's not a good one. But see, there's always somebody telling us what to do, right? But see, we don't like it. We don't like it. You you said it. I, I didn't want to say it. You said it. But see, but then there's the punishment. 
Now, church, I said this is the gospel story. Before you can tell people about the provision and the promise of hope, you got to tell them about the punishment. See? There's a problem, and there's consequences, there's a predicament, and there's got to be punishment before we can get to the provision. Boy, that punishment was getting stung 13 times in the back as I was running away from my problem. I thought running away would make it all better, like I could get away with it. Like I could get away with it, throwing a rock at the hornet's nest. So there was punishment, absolutely, and not only from the hornets, but from my mom. So what's that punishment? Verses 14 to 19. God speaks directly to each one of the players in this story. Maybe that's something that we we miss when we read this. But see, God directs his punishment to individuals. Why? Because, listen, because we are individually responsible for our own actions. You get that? That's really important. That is part of our biblical worldview, that we are responsible individually for our own actions. And so God speaks to each one individually. It says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent. So first he talks to the serpent. Because you've done this, I won't read the whole thing, you know. There's a curse in verse 15. There it is, Genesis 3, 15. Circle it. God says, I'll put enmity, enmity, which means disagreement, fighting. Trouble between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What's worse, getting your head bruised or your heel? You see what God is doing right here? Let's not miss it. He is promising that the seed of a woman, meaning there would be a man that would come along at some point, That Satan is going to try to bruise and will bruise his heel. But that man, who we know to be Jesus, will bruise, or some versions say crush, his head. See? Because we know Jesus claims the victory. We can say amen to that. So right there, Genesis 3.15, is the introduction of hope, church. Right there. That one day there would be a remedy for this predicament, this problem, and for the punishment that God was laying out. So he spoke to the serpent, and he said what would happen with the serpent. You'll go on your belly. We look at a snake, it's supposed to be a reminder. The snake, the lowest of the animals, slithering as low to the ground as you can get. But then to the woman, he said, I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing, and your desire will be contrary for your husband. Two things. There's going to be added pain in childbirth. It does not say there was no pain in childbirth and now there is because childbirth is not the curse. Let's make sure we get that right. Childbirth is a blessing. It's part of God's design, right? But there was, there was pleasure. There was beauty in that. And now God says now it's going to hurt. And now it's going to be a painful reminder. And also, in, in symbolically, uh, you know, referencing the broken, rela- the broken fellowship with me, God is saying, there's going to be broken fellowship with your husband. There's going to be tension there. You're not going to be perfectly seeing eye to eye like Adam and Eve did before Satan came along. You see that? There is brokenness in fellowship, in relationships. And then he speaks to Adam. And what does he say? 
because you listened to your wife, you ate, because he's saying you have just as much responsibility, Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to cause you all kinds of pain, thorns and thistles. The next time you're gardening, remember that. Thank you, Adam and Eve. But what's he basically saying? Work is going to be hard. Childbirth is going to be painful. Working the ground is going to be hard work. You're going to get cut. You're going to hurt yourself. It's going to be labor now. It's going to be laborious. Where that labor was good, again, just like God, listen, God is not saying that there was no pain in childbirth, right? So, because, because if there was, then we would say, oh, then giving birth to a, a, a child is a curse. No. Just like that's not the case, working used to be good and pleasurable. Didn't he not say to Adam and Eve, take care of the garden? You're going to tend this garden. And it would have been beautiful and perfect work. But see, now work is hard. Church, what do we get from that? Life is hard. Anybody ever tell you that? Did you ever experience that? Yes, we should all be nodding our heads. Yes, life is hard. So life is now hard because of this. This is where it comes from. Life is hard, and God said it would be because we were disobedient. We were disobedient to that one rule that we chose to break. Why? From pride. We didn't want somebody else telling us what to do. We thought we could be wise apart from God. And we would have dominion not somebody having dominion over us. So for both of them, life is now hard. And one last thing I find so interesting. How did God create Adam? Out of the dust, out of the dirt. So the dirt, the ground, was a blessing to life. But now God says the ground is going to make it hard for you. So what was once a blessing to life is now a curse to death. You see that? Nothing is lost on God. And finally, as we wrap up verses 20 to 24, provision. I mean, God is so good. He doesn't just leave it at the punishment. And church, this is the part of the gospel message we love to tell other people. It was my mom removing the stingers, putting the medicine on me to soothe my pain. I didn't deserve it because because it was my actions. I deserved the pain. But my mom soothed that pain. She took away the problem, removed the stingers, not only removed the stingers, but she put the medicine on to make me feel better. In verses 20 to 24, God doesn't wipe them out. He spares all of humankind. He says, you'll be the mother of all living. In verse 21, he forgives them. This is so important. You know what it says in verse 21? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothe them. Church, you know why that's an important verse? Significantly important? Because remember, Adam and Eve tried on their own, a consequence of sin, to cover their problem, to fix their own mistakes. And God says, that's not adequate. You're just going to run from me and hide? So God, even after pronouncing judgment, it says the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin. So Adam and Eve didn't do it. God did it. It wasn't fig leaves. It was now animal skin. Do we see the significant difference? Where did that animal skin come from that covered Adam and Eve, that God made? An innocent animal 
had to be sacrificed. One of God's beautiful creations, beautiful creatures that God created. He gave Adam and Eve to rule over them, to love them, to care for them, to tend that flock. And so God had to kill an innocent being, one who did no wrong, to cover the sins of humankind. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what he did with Jesus his most beautiful of all of his creations, his very own son, not created, sorry, his very own son he gives and sheds his blood. Jesus did, willingly, on the cross for us, so that the blood of Christ covers our sins. That's the only way we can be reconciled to God. Remember how I said that the foundation for everything is in Genesis? The foundation for salvation from being rescued from our problem is right here. God, the Lord God, made, took animal skins and put it on them before he kicked them out of the garden. God provides the remedy. God provides the provision. We don't do it on our own. That is grace. The definite, thank you, brother. The definition of grace is getting something we do not deserve. Adam and Eve didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve to have that medicine to soothe me. But in my mother's grace, I got something I didn't deserve. Adam and Eve got covering to provide for them. And you know what else? The other thing, I don't want to get lost in us. It also says that God then says, it's the picture of the Trinity, God says, behold, they have become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And then you know what he says in verse 22? lest he reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life. Remember, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, so they don't get tempted again to go take from the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. We're going to kick them out of the garden. It sounds like part of the punishment, but it is the mercy and the grace of God. Because if they would have, in their sinful state, eaten from that tree of life, church, they would have lived forever ever in a sinful state. Praise God, we do not have to live for all of eternity separated from God in a sinful state because he sent his son to shed his blood as a covering for our sin. For all of that, we can say amen. It all started here in Genesis 3. It is the picture of grace. Why is this all important? The word of God is absolute truth. And let us hold fast to the word of God. Because the world around us is trying to discredit the word of God. It is not absolute, just like Satan did way back then. Trying to chirp in our ear. The Bible doesn't really say that. There's no way it says that there's a heaven, that there's a hell. It doesn't mean sin like you think it means. It doesn't define marriage this way. It doesn't define gender this way. Do you see what I'm saying? That the world's philosophies, the worldview, is anti-biblical. It is anti-truth. We must stick to the very truth of God's word because just like Satan did back in the garden, he was trying to distort the truth, the very words of God. God did not really say that, did he? The Bible doesn't really say that, does it? No, here's what it says. Romans 1 says that in their sin, people exchanged the truth for a lie. 
See, truth is a commodity. Proverbs says we should buy truth and never sell it. We take the truth and we never give it away. Chapter 3 of Genesis contains the gospel. It's about humankind trying to live on their own terms, trying to fix their own problem that they created. And it goes through what the problem is. It goes through the, the predicament. It goes through the punishment, which is real. But then it gives the provision, the promise of a plan of redemption. And that we call grace. God paid the price for us. He took the punishment. The one who didn't give in to sin, the one who lived the perfect life, who died a death on the cross, shed his blood for our forgiveness, that is grace, getting what we don't deserve. Can we sing about that now? Let's sing about God's grace this time.